Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Dollars and Doctor Show. I'm your host, Krithej Varn, founder and financial planner at White Coat Financial. On episode six, I covered some common types of investments. But on today's episode, we're going to discuss some of the common types of investment accounts. I like to use the analogy of furniture and houses when I discuss the difference between the different types of investments versus the different types of investment accounts. Think of investments like furniture and investment accounts like houses. The furniture goes in the house, just like investments go in their investment accounts. This might seem like an obvious point, but I often hear people say that they bought RSPs or they invested in their TFSA. But when I take a look inside their RSP or their TFSA, the money's not invested at all. It's just sitting there as cash. This is why I use the analogy of furniture and houses when talking about the different types of investments as well as the different types of investment accounts. I'll be doing a simple overview of the common account types today, but at a later stage, I'll do an in-depth episode comparing and contrasting some of the different accounts, features, and how they can be implemented in your overall financial plan and your investment strategy. So without further ado, let's dive right in. To set up the conversation about the different investment accounts, let's quickly touch on how investments are taxed in Canada. When you make money on an investment, you have to pay taxes on it. Now, there are three main ways of making money on your investments, capital gains, dividends, and interest. Let's start with capital gains. This is essentially when the value of your investment has increased in price and you sell your investment for a gain. For example, let's say you invest $1,000 to purchase shares in a stock. And then after a few years, you sell the shares for $5,000. This means you'd have a capital gain of $4,000. As of today, 50% of capital gains are taxable, meaning of the $4,000 capital gain, only $2,000 is a taxable gain. The $2,000 would be added to your income for the year and then taxed based on your marginal tax rate. Next, we have dividends. When you receive dividends from an investment from a Canadian corporation, they're classified either as eligible or non-eligible dividends, which are taxed differently. Generally speaking, Eligible dividends are typically paid out by public corporations from income that's already been taxed at a higher corporate tax rate, while non-eligible dividends are generally paid out by private corporations from income that's been taxed at a lower corporate tax rate. It's important to note that there's also tax credits available for dividend income, which can help offset the amount of tax that you actually end up owing. Now, if you receive dividends from a foreign company, the tax treatment will depend on whether or not Canada has a tax treaty with the country where the company is located. If Canada does have a tax treaty with the foreign country, the dividends might be eligible for a reduced tax rate. Now, if Canada doesn't have a tax treaty with the foreign country, the dividends will be taxed at your marginal tax rate. Plus, you might also be subject to foreign withholding taxes, which are essentially just taxes that are withheld by the foreign company before the dividends are ever paid out to you. Lastly, we have interest income. And when you earn interest income from an investment, it's treated as regular income and taxed at your marginal tax rate, unfortunately. This means that the amount of tax that you pay on your interest income will depend entirely on your income and your tax bracket. Overall, it's important to be aware of the implications of your investment income when you're making investment decisions, since it can get pretty complex. So you should always consult with a tax professional about specific tax advice for your situation and how to take advantage of any credits or to reduce the amount of taxes that you owe. Now that we know how investment income is taxed, let's talk about the different investment accounts that are available. 
A non-registered investment account is an investment account that is not registered with the Canadian government for tax purposes, meaning it's not an RRSP, it's not a TFSA, it's not an RESP, an RDSP, or an FHSA. Unlike the registered accounts that I just mentioned, which have specific rules and limitations around contributions and withdrawals, non-registered investment accounts offer much more freedom and flexibility when it comes to investing your money. You can invest as much or as little as you'd like, and you can withdraw your money at any time without penalty. When it comes to taxes in a non-registered account, you don't receive any tax deductions or tax credits for contributions. So while any investment income you earn in a non-registered investment account is subject to full taxation, this also means that you can claim capital losses against any capital gains in order to reduce your tax liability. Meaning, if you sell a stock at a loss, you can claim that loss against any capital gains earned in order to reduce your taxes owing. Having said that, you will need to keep track of your own investment income and capital gains or losses for tax purposes. And this can be more complicated than just simply receiving a tax form from your financial institution like you would for a registered account. In summary, a non-registered investment can be a great option for Canadians who are looking for freedom and flexibility when it comes to investing their money. But as a result of this flexibility, there is no tax incentives or additional benefits of investing in a non-registered account. Moving on, a Registered Retirement Savings Plan, or RRSP for short, is a type of investment account that's designed specifically for retirement savings. And the purpose of the RRSP is to provide Canadians with a tax-efficient way to save for their retirement years. When you contribute to an RSP, you're able to deduct the amount of your contribution from your taxable income, which can help reduce the amount of income taxes that you owe. For example, if you earn $100,000 and you contribute $10,000 to your RRSP, you'll only have to pay income taxes on $90,000 of income. In addition to this, any investment earnings within your RRSP are tax deferred, which means that you don't have to pay tax on those earnings until you withdraw the money from your RRSP. This helps your investments grow faster since there's less tax drag on your portfolio. The idea behind the RRSP is to reduce your income taxes owing when you make a contribution and allow your investments to grow tax sheltered until you make withdrawals, which is usually in retirement. However, it's important to note that you do not have to be in retirement in order to make those withdrawals. So it's better to think of your RRSP not as a retirement account, but rather as a way to procrastinate income taxes to a later date. I've personally had clients make large RRSP contributions for three or four years straight and then take a sabbatical in the fifth year and then withdraw the money from their RRSP in that fifth year. This allowed them to reduce their taxes owing for three to four years and procrastinate their income taxes to the fifth year when they were in a lower income tax bracket since they weren't working. This is just an example, but it shows how someone can use the RRSP to procrastinate a portion of their income taxes to a future date. Now, of course, there are some drawbacks to the RRSP. One potential drawback is that you're limited in the amount of money that you can contribute each year. In 2023, the maximum contribution limit is set at 18% of your previous year's earned income up to a maximum of $30,780. This means that if you are a very high income earner, you might not be able to contribute as much to your RRSP as you might like. One good thing is that any unused contribution room can carry forward. So if you forget to contribute or you're unable to contribute one year, any room you accumulate can be carried forward to the future indefinitely. 
Another potential downside of the RSP is that you will eventually have to pay tax on your investment earnings when you withdraw the money from your RSP. And unfortunately, you won't be paying tax as investment tax, but rather as income tax. This means you'll need to be really careful when considering the timing of your withdrawals in order to minimize the amount of tax that you're going to owe. Now, there are two ways to withdraw money from your RSP without paying tax right away. The first is the Home Buyer's Plan, or HBP for short, which is a program that allows you to withdraw up to $35,000 from your RSP to use towards the purchase of your first home as part of your down payment. The HBP allows you to withdraw the money from your RSP without incurring any income taxes, as long as you repay the money back to your RSP over a 15-year period. Now, it's important to note that when you do start paying back into your RSP, you have to elect on your tax forms that the contributions are a repayment of the HBP and those will not be considered a tax deduction. If you decide not to pay back the money over a 15-year period or at all, one-fifteenth of the money that you withdraw will be added to your income for 15 consecutive years. For example, if you withdrew $30,000 from your RSP under the home buyer plan and you don't pay the money back, each year for the next 15 years, $2,000 would be added to your taxable income. The second way to withdraw money tax-free from your RSP is with the Lifelong Learner Plan, aka the LLP, which is just another program that allows you to withdraw money from your RSP, but this time to fund your education or training. The LLP allows you to withdraw up to $20,000 over a period of up to four years to help pay for eligible education or training expenses. As with the home buyer plan, you are able to withdraw money without incurring any taxes as long as you repay the money back to your RSP, but this time over a period of 10 years instead of 15 years. Now, while the RSP is designed for retirement, the home buyer plan and the LLP can be great options for Canadians to consider contributing to an RSP if they're looking to save for a specific goal like buying a home or furthering their education. However, it's important to remember that both programs have specific rules and limitations that you'll need to be aware of in order to take full advantage of them. For example, with the home buyer plan, you must be a first-time home buyer and you must intend to use the home as your primary residence. While with the lifelong learner plan, you must be enrolled in a qualifying education or training program. In summary, the RRSP account offers a number of benefits for retirement savings, including tax deductions on contributions and the ability to grow your investments tax-free until you're ready to start making withdrawals, which is usually in retirement. Plus, the Home Buyer Plan and the Lifelong Learning Plan can be useful programs for doctors who are looking to save for a down payment on a home or fund post-secondary education for themselves or a partner or spouse. Having said that, it's important to carefully consider the potential downsides of an RSP, such as the contribution limits and the eventual tax implications of withdrawing your money, since withdrawals are mandatory when you turn 71. Next, we have the tax-free savings account, or the TFSA for short. And the key benefit of a TFSA is that any investment income that you earn within the account is completely tax-free. That means you don't have to pay tax on interest, dividends, or any capital gains that you earn on your investments as long as they're within the TFSA. In addition to this, any withdrawals that you make from the TFSA are also tax-free, meaning you can use the money in the account without having to worry about taxes. However, 
Unlike the RSP, any contributions that you make to the TFSA are not deductions, meaning they do not reduce your income taxes payable. For example, if you earn $100,000 and you contribute $10,000 to your TFSA, you would still have to pay tax on the full $100,000 of income. But let's say five years later, the $10,000 contribution that you made has now grown to $20,000 and you withdraw it. There would be $0 in taxes owing on that $20,000 withdrawal. One potential downside of the TFSA is that there are annual contribution limits that you must abide by, just like the RSP. However, unlike the RSP, the TFSA limits are based on your age and not your income. The TFSA was initially launched in 2009, with an initial annual contribution limit of $5,000 for Canadians over the age of 18. And each year, a new annual contribution limit has been announced. For 2023, the annual contribution limit for an individual is $6,500, meaning you can contribute an additional $6,500 to your TFSA in 2023. And just like the RRSP, any missed contribution room can be carried forward indefinitely. For example, as of today, anyone that was 18 years or older in 2009 who's never contributed to their TFSA can deposit a total of $88,000 to their TFSA. This is because since the TFSA was announced in 2009, you can carry forward every single year's annual contribution room up until 2023. Now, those who turned 18 after 2009 will have a smaller contribution limit depending on the year that they turned 18. Another unique feature of the TFSA is that any withdrawals can be recontributed in the following calendar year. For example, if you withdraw $10,000 from your TFSA, you can recontribute that $10,000 back to your TFSA in the following calendar year, and it would not reduce your new annual contribution limit. This is because when you withdraw money and you recontribute it a year later to your TFSA, it's not considered a new contribution. But it's important to be careful when recontributing to your TFSA. If you make a withdrawal and you recontribute to your TFSA within the same calendar year, it would then be considered an over-contribution if you don't have the room available. And if you contribute more than your TFSA limit, you will be subject to a penalty, which is usually 1% of the over-contribution per month. In summary, the TFSA offers the ability to shelter investment gains completely tax-free, and it allows you to make withdrawals completely free as well. However, it's important to be aware of the contribution limits and the potential penalties of over-contributing to your TFSA. Next, we have the brand new First Home Savings Account, or FHSA for short. The FHSA combines the key features of the RRSP Home Buyer Plan and the TFSA. Any contributions you make to the FHSA are similar to RRSP contributions, meaning they're considered deductions that reduce your taxable income, which in turn will reduce how much tax you pay overall. From there, any investment income that you earn on your contributions is also tax-free. And finally, any withdrawals you make from the FHSA are also tax-free as long as they're used towards the purchase of your first home. And the best part is you don't have to pay the money back this time, unlike the RRSP home buyer plan. When it comes to eligibility, there are certain requirements that you must meet in order to participate in the FHSA program. First, like the RRSP and the TFSA, you must be a Canadian resident. Number two, you must be the age of majority, either 18 or 19, depending on the province that you reside in, but you also must be under age 71. 
Number three, and most importantly, you must be a first-time homebuyer, meaning you or your current spouse or common-law partner must not have owned a home that you lived in as your primary residence at any point during the portion of the calendar year before the account was opened and in the preceding four calendar years. This means that even if you own a rental property, but you don't live in it and you haven't lived in it for four years, you might still be able to use the FHSA. As of today, annual contributions are capped at $8,000 per year, up to a lifetime maximum contribution limit of $40,000. However, unlike the RSP and the TFSA, a maximum of $8,000 of unused contribution room can be carried forward to the following year. So in essence, after you make your first contribution, you can only afford to miss one year of contributions without losing that contribution room entirely. On the other hand, just like the RSP, you don't have to claim the income tax deduction on any contributions that you made in the year that that contribution is made, meaning you can carry forward your deductions to future years if you choose to do so. In summary, the FHSA offers a number of benefits for first-time homebuyers, including tax-deductible contributions and tax-free withdrawals for the purchase of your first home. However, it's important to be aware of the eligibility requirements and the contribution limits of the program. Now, before I move on to other registered accounts, it's important to mention that the RRSP and the FHSA can both be used together to purchase your first home. They do not have to be mutually exclusive. Moreover, multiple individuals who are looking to own a property together can use the RRSP and the FHSA. For example, if you're a couple and you're looking to buy a home, you can use $35,000 each under the RRSP Home Buyer Program and then another $40,000 each under the FHSA for a total of $150,000 combined. And just in case I was not clear before, I'm going to mention it once more, that you cannot use the RRSP or the FHSA for a rental property. It must be your first home, and that home must be your primary residence. Moving on, the next most common registered account is the Registered Education Savings Plan, or RESP for short. The RESP is a tax-sheltered account that allows you to save for your child's post-secondary education. And the primary benefit of an RESP is that it allows for tax-sheltered growth on the investments within the account, as well as government grants and incentives that are added to the account. To keep it simple, when you contribute to the RESP, the government will match your contribution through the Canada Education Savings Grant, or CESG, by 20% on contributions up to $2,500 every year. Meaning, you can receive $500 of CESG grants every year that you contribute $2,500 to your RESP, up to a lifetime maximum of $7,200 of CESG. Plus, eligible beneficiaries can also receive the Canada Learning Bond, or CLB, in addition to the CESG, and some provinces will also offer some additional incentives. In addition to the grants, the savings in a RESP grow tax-deferred, which means as long as the money is in the RESP, you won't have to pay taxes on those funds. When the beneficiary makes withdrawals from the RESP for university or college tuition and education-related expenses, they are taxed in the name of the child. And because most young students are usually in a low-income tax bracket, they won't have to pay very much tax when they do receive education assistance payments on withdrawals from their RESP. But like all registered accounts, there are some drawbacks to the RESP. 
For starters, if the beneficiary decides not to pursue post-secondary education, any grant money must be returned back to the government. Plus, if the beneficiaries withdraw their earnings on contributions and they use them for non-education-related expenses, they'll have to pay taxes and a 20% penalty on the earnings on contributions portion of the amount of the withdrawal. More importantly, there's a $50,000 lifetime limit per beneficiary, meaning each child cannot have more than $50,000 contributed to their account by the person who's opened the RESP. For any over contributions, you'll have to pay a fee of 1% on the amount above $50,000 per month until the over contribution is withdrawn. Now, the money can stay in the RESP for up to 36 years, so even if the beneficiary decides not to go to post-secondary right away, they can use the account at a later stage. However, if the beneficiary does not attend post-secondary at all, they have three options. Number one, withdraw the funds from the RESP, pay taxes on the earnings, and return the grants to the government. Number two, transfer the funds in the RESP to another beneficiary in an individual plan or a group plan as long as it's below the 50000 lifetime contribution limit. Or number three, transfer the funds from the RESP to an RRSP if the RESP account has been open for at least 10 years and the beneficiary is over 21 years of age. Next up, we have a less common account, which is the Registered Disability Savings Plan, or RDSP for short. The RDSP is a savings plan that's designed to help Canadians with disabilities and their families save for the future. To qualify for the RDSP, you must be a resident of Canada, under the age of 60, and most importantly, you must have a long-term disability that makes you eligible for the disability tax credit. The main benefit of the RDSP is that the government will match contributions with as much as $3 for every $1 you put into the plan up to a lifetime maximum of $70,000. Plus, the government provides a grant up to $1,000 a year up to a lifetime maximum of $20,000 to qualifying low-income plan beneficiaries. There is no yearly contribution limit to an RDSP, but there is a lifetime maximum of $200,000 of contributions. The good thing is that any government matching contributions and investment earnings do not count towards the $200,000 lifetime contribution limit. But contributions cannot be made after the end of the year that the beneficiary turns 59 years old. In terms of government contributions, there are two types of contributions the government can make to your RDSP, a Canada Disability Savings Grant, or CDSG, and a Canada Disability Savings Bond, or a CDSB. With the CDSG, the government will match contributions up to $3,500 annually until the year in which the beneficiary turns 49, up to a lifetime limit of $70,000 of matching contributions. The CDSP, on the other hand, is only available to low-income RDSP beneficiaries, and it's not contingent on any other RDSP contributions. But it has an annual limit of $1,000, up to a $20,000 lifetime limit. RDSP withdrawals can be made to the beneficiary at any time for any purpose. However, the beneficiary must start receiving regular payments, which are also called lifetime disability assistance payments, by the end of the year that they turn 60. And once these lifetime disability assistance payments start, they'll continue for the life of the beneficiary. 
If the RDSP holds money from the CDSG or the CDSP, there are other rules that can impact your withdrawals. For example, for each $1 withdrawal, $3 of any CDSG or CDSB paid into the plan in the 10 years prior to the withdrawal must be repaid up to a specified amount. Plus, if the majority of the funds in the RDSP are from the CDSG or the CDSB, there are further limits on what can be withdrawn in an individual year. Now, there are other investment accounts and investment vehicles available to Canadian doctors, like the individual pension plan, the personal pension plan, the retirement compensation agreement, and even setting up a trust. But those are more complex accounts that I'll cover when we discuss retirement and tax planning more in depth. These early episodes of the podcast are designed to simply lay the groundwork for more complex topics to come. Having said that, I want to cover one more investment account that's common for Canadian doctors, which are corporate investment accounts. And like the different investment vehicles I just mentioned, I will be doing an episode that's dedicated to corporations at a later stage. But for now, let's define what a professional corporation and a holding corporation are. A professional corporation is a corporation that's owned and operated by a professional such as a physician, a dentist, an optometrist, lawyers, and even accountants. The purpose of a professional corporation is to provide tax advantages to the individuals that own that corporation by sheltering more of their income within the corporation instead of earning that income personally. A holding corporation, on the other hand, is a corporation that can be used to hold assets, like the shares of another corporation, or stocks, bonds, and real estate on behalf of an individual or a corporation. One of the key benefits of investing inside a holding corporation is the potential for tax savings. Generally speaking, if you're a doctor, you'll have a professional corporation, and the income earned inside that corporation is taxed at a lower rate than it would be if you earned personal income. You would then take your retained earnings or profit that's beyond what you need to personally spend and usually move that money over to a holding company. And the benefit of doing this is that you're able to take advantage of the lower tax rates on your corporate income compared to your personal tax rates. So this means that any income that is earned in a corporation is taxed at a lower rate, generally speaking. And if it stays within the corporation, there's more left over to invest, in theory. However, without diving into the complexities of corporate investments and tax, investment income earned within a corporation can be subject to higher tax rates that can reduce some of the benefits of incorporating in the first place. So having a large investment portfolio within a corporation can become problematic from a tax standpoint over time. In some sense, having a corporate investment account through your holding company is similar to a non-registered investment account, since there's no tax-free accounts or deductions for contributions. But the very act of paying yourself a lower personal income and keeping more of your money in your corporation is similar to an RRSP, because you're deferring the personal taxes on that money to a later date when or if it's withdrawn from the corporation. To keep it simple, generally speaking, you're able to build up your savings faster within a corporation, but corporate investments may be subject to heavier taxes in the latter years. But on the flip side, personal income is taxed more heavily upfront, meaning it's harder to build up your savings personally, but they are more tax efficient in the latter years due to investment accounts like the RSP and the TFSA. Investing in Canada can be complex due to the many different investment accounts and the different structures that are available to you, especially as a doctor. 
This episode covered some of the most common types of investments in Canada, like the RRSP, the TFSA, the FHSA, the RESP, the RDSP, and we even covered investing within a holding corporation. Now, each account has its own unique features, benefits, and tax incentives, as well as potential downsides. So it's important for doctors to work with a financial planner and their accountant to understand the different options available to choose from and making sure that they structure their investments in the right way to meet their financial goals and their investment goals. And that concludes our eighth episode of the Dollars and Doctor Show. My goal today was simply to give you an introduction to some of the common investment accounts that you'll come across in your investment journey as a Canadian doctor. As I already mentioned, these early episodes are just laying the groundwork of the different accounts and the different investments available and some of the rules that come along with those accounts. In the future, I'll be talking about real-world examples and how to implement the different investments and the different investment accounts into your overall financial plan and investment strategy. This episode was brought to you by White Coat Financial. Our goal at White Coat Financial is to change the financial planning industry by combining a fiduciary duty with a one-stop shop experience for our clients. If you're a Canadian doctor and you're looking for financial advice on mortgages, investing, insurance, taxes, or any other financial matters, visit our website, www.whitecoatfinancial.ca. On our website, you'll be able to schedule a free initial consultation to learn about how White Coat Financial can help you protect your income, grow your money, and live better. If you have any questions or feedback for us, you can email me directly at gerthage at whitecoatfinancial.ca. Thank you for your attention, thank you for your time, and thank you for your ongoing support. I look forward to speaking with you soon. The information contained in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it is not to be taken as financial advice. While the host of this podcast is a registered financial planner, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as financial advice. Before making any financial decisions, you should always consult with a financial professional about your unique circumstances and personal situation. The hosts and guests of this podcast are not responsible for any errors or omissions or for any actions taken based on the information provided in this podcast. It is the responsibility of the listener to do their own due diligence and make informed financial decisions.